let's turn our attention now to the message. And um, we'll just uh, look at the title for a moment. Disciples put the gospel front and center. I mean front and center in their lives. They give it priority in their lives. We're going to talk about that just now. And to do so, let's begin with the text, 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read down through verse 11. So I hope you have something open and you can see it either on your tablet, on your, um, on your uh, phone, or perhaps if you don't have either of those, your Bible, or you can look at the screen behind me. Paul has been talking about worship, and now he's changing the subject and getting back to the gospel. And he says, now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaimed to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. Actually, probably a better translation is you are also being saved by the gospel. I hope you feel that in your own life, that day by day you continue to let the gospel, the good news that that God forgives our sins through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our faith in him, that he forgives us and he calls us his own through the gospel day by day throughout our lives. We're not just saved once by the gospel. We are in the process of being saved by the gospel day by day. And that's actually the tense of the verb that Paul uses in verse 2. You are also being saved by the gospel if you hold fast to the message I proclaimed to you. And, uh, and then he goes on to say, unless you have believed for no purpose. Other translations put it something like, unless your faith has been unreal from the very first. In other words, the Bible never supports losing your salvation. It says if a person looks saved and later it's obvious they're not saved, they didn't lose anything. They never had it to begin with. And so that's what Paul is saying there as well. Unless you have believed for no purpose or unless your faith has been unreal from the very first. That's the Weymouth translation. Other translations would say something similar. And then in verse 3, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, his death uh, for our sins was easily or fully uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. So prophesied in the Scriptures. And then verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, the Aramaic form of the word that is translated in Greek as Petros or Peter. Uh, He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, that would be the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at once. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, this would be the half-brother of Jesus, not James the son of Zebedee, then to all the apostles, and then a very important verse, and we'll get to this at the end of the message. Paul says, last of all, in verse 8, as he, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Is there something in your background that every now and then it just comes back to you with a kind of renewed horror? You know, something you've done, something you didn't do, something you were a part of, something you embraced, and you look back on it and you think, oh God, how could I have been involved in that? 
Well, of course, you couldn't even talk like that if you weren't born again. If your mind has not been redeemed and renewed by God's gracious work, if you wouldn't be repentant of those things if, you, if God hadn't worked in your life. But every now and then, there are things, I suspect, in your life that come back, as I say, with a kind of renewed horror. Paul's problem was he couldn't forget what he had been and what he had done. He wrote to Timothy about it at the very end of his life, uh, how he persecuted the church and so forth. He couldn't forget what he had been and what he had done. But he didn't let that hold him back. Notice what he says. Unworthy to be called an apostle, I persecuted the church of God. But verse 10, by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. In fact, he could have said, however, or in fact, I worked more than any of them. The other apostles, I worked more than them, harder than them, longer than them, in more effective ways than them. Yet not I, it wasn't really me, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. This is the word of God, and I pray that God will bless the reading of it. Let's begin with a math problem. Uh, Here it is on the screen. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah, here's the math problem. The fellow you see there is a man named Pierre de Fermat, a Frenchman. 1637, he set this down sometimes called Fermat's last theorem. There are no whole number solutions to the equation x times n plus y times n equals z times n when n is greater than 2. (laughs) Now, the problem that was set before the mathematical world was to prove whether or not Fermat was correct in what he said. And for 300 years... The solution was never found. Just in this century, uh, well, right at the end of the last century, 1994, a British mathematician named Andrew Wiles figured it out after a lifetime of puzzling. And I'm not kidding. He started working on Fermat's theorem when he was 10 years old. And so when he was in his 50s, he finally found the solution. And so two years ago, 2016, when he was 62, he was awarded the $700,000 Abel Prize for his work in the mathematical world. That's the equivalent to the Nobel Prize. He, he is the greatest. He did something nobody else had ever done. And that's amazing. But now for myself, and I suspect you're more like this as well, I'm more grateful for men who discover solutions to, shall we say, more practical problems or daily problems like uh, Louis Pasteur, let's go, we're going to go quickly through these next slides. Louis Pasteur, who, uh, you know, figured out how to prevent milk from spoiling by means of heating it. We call the process pasteurization. Thank God for that. Or Edison with his light bulb, or uh, Alexander Graham Bell with the telephone, and then there was Carl Benz's motor car, and Jonas Salk, who developed the first polio vaccine. And we dare not leave out Oscar Uxa. Who's Oscar Uxa? Well, in 1948, he invented the Pez candy distributor. So there you go. A a solution to a practical problem. But let me tell you something. From almost the beginning, the world has been faced with a conundrum far more difficult to solve than Fermat's theorem and much more important to mankind's well-being than the prevention of sour milk or the polio vaccine. I'm talking about the problem 
of sin. Do you remember how our text begins today? I preached the gospel to you, and I'm going to remind you of what it is. And the first line in the gospel is, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so I'm saying to you then that for 4,000 years, the world faced a more difficult problem than any of these others that have been solved by the great men of history, the problem of sin. I want to take a few minutes, if I may, to just go through, and if this is not news to you, then just pray for those that need to hear it most as you, as you follow. But I want to talk to you about why sin is a problem. Why is it the problem, the problem that mankind faces? It, it's not a problem that man, mankind faces, it's the problem. And the first thing is, it separates us from God. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God, and your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not listen. Sin separates us. It creates barriers between us and God. We were made for fellowship with him. If we feel that life is never quite what it ought to be, it's because sin has made a barrier or created a barrier between us and God, and we have no fellowship with our creator, and that, in the end, is the whole point to life. Number two, it earns us the justified wrath of God. Listen to John the Baptist as he speaks in John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, verse 36. Now this is John the Baptist speaking. He says, the one who believes in the Son, that would be Jesus, has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son, and there are some translations that very accurately say the one who refuses to obey the Son, will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And so sin earns us the justified wrath of God. I'm I'm so tempted to spend the rest of the message justifying each of these statements, but we need to move on. Number three, sin demonstrates or reveals our natural spiritual death. Ephesians chapter two, verse one, and you were dead in sins. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, what were you before you became a believer? You were a being, a person who was dead in sins, trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. Now there's more to it than that, but I think I'll just skip on right there just to let you know that sin reveals our spiritual deadness. Then number four, it is the source, that is sin is the source of all the world's troubles. Mark chapter 7, verse 20. Then Jesus said, whenever you see square brackets, remember this, and you, and you can see this behind me, I think. Um, it was a pronoun. Then he said. If you, if you have the previous verses, you can see that he is Jesus. But I just wanted you to know that. So the square brackets indicate that I'm inserting a word to improve understanding. Then Jesus said, what comes out of a person, that defiles him. What comes out, not what goes in. You don't have to you know, avoid particular foods. You don't have to be so careful about a diet. What you need to understand is it's not what goes in, it's what comes out that defiles you. Now look at what Jesus goes on to say. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, promiscuity, stinginess, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. And I would add, without any fear of stretching the truth at all, they don't just defile a person, they defile the world around you. And because those things, or at least some of those things, to some degree or another, come out of all of us, then all of us live in a 
self-defiled world. Number five, this one is perhaps news or new understanding of something, and so I really want you to pray carefully and, and, and look carefully at what I'm about to say here regarding why sin is the problem the world faces. Sin is infinite and eternal in its scope and thereby impossible to erase or repair. Infinite, eternal in its scope. That is to say, you commit a sin, it doesn't just lie there in the place where you committed it. It's like throwing a stone into a pond, and the ripples go right out to the edge, no matter how big the pond is. You throw a sin stone into the world around you, and the ripples go out to the edge of eternity. Where's the edge of eternity? Ha, it's a long way out there, I can tell you. So, sin is infinite and eternal in its scope and thereby impossible to erase or repair. You say, well, pastor, where does the Bible teach that? Well, let's look at least at this one text, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, that talks about God's judgment will take place. Notice I'm adding words there, just to make sure that we understand what we're saying here. God's judgment will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 9. These will pay the penalty of what? Eternal destruction. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. So I say again, sin is infinite and eternal in its scope. Now number 6. Sin rules over the sinner, making self-reformation impossible. Look at Romans 8, 7. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law. In fact, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I hope, I hope you see the problem. That is, sin has overwhelmed us. It separates us from God. It condemns us before God. It brings death to us and to everything we touch. It's the universal plague. It's infinite in its impact upon us, and it rules over us so that we cannot effect a course correction even if we want to, which, thanks to sin's rule, we don't. This is a much more difficult equation to solve than Fermat's theorem. Speaking of that, It was interesting to learn that to prove Fermat's theorem, Andrew Wiles, remember the man who in 1994 actually did that, he had to develop an entire new field of mathematics. He had to come at the problem in a way that nobody had ever done mathematics before. That's why, by the way, he he, he figured it out in 1994, published the results of his studies, And it was only 2016 before he got the award because a whole bunch of other mathematicians had to look at his work and make sure that what he had done was correct. Let me tell you something. In the same way, the problem of sin was unsolvable for 4,000 years. You see, God's infinite justice demands that the infinite depth of sin be matched by an infinite sacrifice, or I might say an infinitely worthy sacrifice made by an infinitely pure, sinless person for who is able to perfectly represent the infinite sinners for whom the sacrifice is going to be made. Now, you're not going to find such a person just living down the street. 
So that brings us then to Paul's big idea related to the gospel. And it's really the first point of my message, although I'm farther along than you might think. But point number one, disciples put the gospel front and center, that is, as our first priority, because it is the greatest good news that can ever be shared. The greatest good news that can ever be shared. You see, and I hope you're hearing, remembering all that I just said about all you know, the many uses of the word infinite. Jesus, Jesus, the infinite Son of God, who as the Son of Mary is also the Son of Man, has died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us. In the six hours that he hung on the cross, this infinite God-man suffered an infinite amount of wrath at a level where, uh, where neither quantity, that is the amount of suffering, nor chronology, that is the length of suffering, can be measured by any factors known to man. In those six hours, he endured the wrath that we deserved. That is to say, an infinity of justice met an infinity of righteous suffering for an infinity of sin at the cross. We just have to accept that he paid. Remember what he says? We have it translated, it is finished. The Greek word, tetelestai, the debt is paid. He paid for our sins. He paid, he satisfied justice on our behalf. He paid the debt. He died. We know that he died because he was buried. The Romans would not have allowed him to be taken down off the cross had he not been provably dead. The spear in his side where the blood and the water came out unmixed, indicating that his body had already died and the serum and the red blood cells were already separating in his chest cavity. He was truly dead. To use an old southern expression, he was graveyard dead. He died, he was buried. That's the point Paul's making. He was buried. And then to show that his suffering was enough, That is to say that his work was truly finished, that the debt was actually paid. God, the righteous judge, raised him from the dead. Death no longer has dominion over him, nor over anyone who by faith is in him, that is to say, in Christ. Listen to Romans 6, 5. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved by sin. Since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. So it's the greatest announcement. We put the gospel front and center because there's nothing greater than that. You know, did the Flames win the Stanley Cup? Well, they did one time. But, uh, you know, that would be a great announcement next spring. The Flames won the Stanley Cup. What's that? Did I get it wrong? Is it the Stampeders that win the Stanley Cup? No, 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 it's not. Anyway, uh, but you see the point I'm trying to make. It would be a great announcement, but it pales into insignificance. I'm going to get married. That's a great announcement at some, at some young man's point in life or a young woman at a certain point in her life. I'm going to get married. What a wonderful announcement. It's a boy. What a wonderful announcement. Or it's a girl. What an equally wonderful announcement. These pale compared to Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was dead. He was buried. 
But on the third day, again, according to the scriptures, he rose from the dead. And he didn't just rise as a kind of renewed memory, an inspiration in our hearts and minds. He rose from the dead bodily and physically and so forth. We'll get to that in a moment. But listen to point number two. Disciples put the gospel front and center because it is the message of the gospel that God empowers to save souls. This one is one that I fear too many modern Christians have lost sight of, so we're going to spend a few minutes on it. It is, the, it is the message of the gospel that God empowers to save souls. Now, think about this for a moment. Paul, the preeminent disciple. There's never been a greater. Jesus, of course, is the model. Paul is the great disciple. And Paul was the one who could say without fear of compromise or contradiction, you follow me as I follow Christ. All, all, over and over through his epistles, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's the great disciple. He's the one we need to follow. So he first makes this claim in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it, that is the gospel, is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now, I'm going to say to you that this verse only makes sense if we realize that it is God who saves us. That is, we don't save ourselves. It's God who saves us, but that he does so by means of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an... I hope this is an interesting phrase for you. The gospel is the fuel for the Holy Spirit or the fuel for the Holy Spirit's work. Think about that. John chapter 16, verse 7. Listen to what Jesus says to the the disciples. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor, that's one of Jesus' terms for the Holy Spirit, the counselor will not come to you. Now, you're going to notice, as you see on the screen behind me, that I've underlined the little phrase, to you, twice. And then I've included some words in brackets, meaning that I've inserted them for meaning. But let me assure you that the words I've inserted are the natural outgrowth, the natural implication of the, phrase, of the little phrases to you, to you, the, the two times. So notice this. If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you, meaning to you apostles, to you Christians. There are 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came. Peter says, if you believe, you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been entering into the life, baptizing every believer into the body of Christ from the beginning till now. So we all have the Holy Spirit. He came to us. If I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, that is Jesus is saying, if I leave earth, if I go back to assume my throne in heaven, I will send him to you. We think of the Holy Spirit, and I've said this before, but you know what? I'm going to repeat it because we don't get it. I just fear we don't get it. Never, never, never think of the Holy Spirit as a gas that is sort of poured out upon planet earth and that just sort of equally distributes itself in the atmosphere so that he's just sort of floating around out there for anybody who wants to breathe him in. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. He is a person. He comes to persons. He indwells the hearts of persons, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he comes to us. Now notice what happens here. When he comes, I've inserted the phrase to you because that's what Jesus means. When he comes to you, he will convict the world through you about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Dear friends, this is what Paul's getting at. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Sin, righteousness, judgment. He will convict the world through you about sin, righteousness, and judgment, about sin because they, that is the people of the world, do not believe in me. And yet there they are struggling with sin. And we need to help them feel as helpless as possible. 
when you communicate the gospel, you need to help sinners feel as helpless in their sin as they possibly can so they'll turn to Jesus. But about righteousness, that is, Christ died for our sins. He paid for our sins. The infinite God-man took an infinite quantity of sin, suffered an infinite amount in those six hours that his body hung on the cross, and so forth. He paid for our sins about righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will no longer see me and about judgment that is judgment to come because the ruler of this world has been judged. Beloved, the Holy Spirit does not convict people of their sin. He does not reveal Jesus Christ as Savior. He does not teach judgment and eternal punishment apart from the proclamation of the gospel. We need to hear that. The Holy Spirit works in people's minds and hearts. Now, people talk about the world being the world in which we live now being a world entirely dedicated to feeling. God doesn't care about that. God wants to speak to your mind as well as your heart. He must speak to your mind as well as your heart. We have to think about the significance and the meaning of the gospel. And so the Holy Spirit works in people's minds and hearts, but like fire, he must have fuel to burn to do his work. I hope you're following this. Like fire, the Holy Spirit must have fuel to burn to do his work, and that fuel is the gospel. We tell somebody, Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He truly died. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures and witnessed by the apostles and many others besides. And then immediately the Holy Spirit says, now I've got some fuel to work with. And he goes to work in that person's mind and heart. Now, why am I making such a deal out of this? Partly because I was shocked by a conversation I recently had with a mature Christian man, a leader in his church. But let me be strongly, let me insist, because it's the gospel truth. This person is not in any way connected with our church. So please don't think, well, who is Pastor Schaefer talking about? You don't know, and I'm not going to tell you, and he's certainly not in this building. I could write this note, these notes without any fear that he was going to be here to hear me today. Wait a minute. No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, but I was shocked by a conversation that I recently had with a mature Christian man who is, in fact, a leader in his church. He became visibly angry as he blamed his grown son's unbelief on the fact that in the son's opinion, too many Christians voted for the wrong political party. The son says, Dad, I cannot believe because look at where the Christians are going. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they're voting. I cannot believe because of what Christians are doing. Now, I will not try to pretend to, or pretend to try to explain the intricacies of God's sovereignty in matters of salvation. But I will insist on one concept with my dying breath. It is the work of God's Holy Spirit to save sinners. And it is the work of God's people to proclaim the gospel. When God's people proclaim the gospel, then God will save some. So, if there is someone that you care for who's lost, remember this. Evangelism does not rest on Christians' ability to change the political system or even to try to eliminate all hypocrisy in the church. Evangelism does not rest on your oratorical capabilities or mine or anybody else's. 
If someone throws these things in your face, please know that they are only excuses to cover their implacable determination not to obey God. So what is your job when they refuse on the basis of some irrelevancy, such as hypocrites in the church or voting for the wrong party or whatever it might be? Your job then is to keep on proclaiming the gospel and to keep on praying for the sinner. And I hope you understand this is supposed to be done with kindness and with sensitivity, but it it must be done. Keep on praying for the sinner. Keep on telling them the gospel every way you possibly can. If necessary, to use a friend of mine, if necessary, use words, as he says. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about the new birth in a sinner's life. Only the Holy Spirit can bring the sinner to repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So so pray for your lost loved ones and keep preaching the gospel to them. Learn to ask them questions that will inspire self-examination, questions that will lead them to see that they need something more. And always remember to put the gospel front and center. Now there's an interesting new book called I Once Was Lost. Fairly new, it's a few years old now that examines the stages of development that seem characteristic of the path that many postmodern millennials follow in, in, uh, in coming to saving faith. Let's put it on the screen. There it is behind me, these stages uh, of, of, of faith in coming to, or coming to saving faith. And the first one is that these postmodern millennials tend to move, according to research and studies and many surveys and so forth, they tend to first move from distrust to trust, but by that we mean they're now starting to believe that, you, that this Christian friend, this new Christian friend they've made, is a genuine person. And so they, they move from distrusting all Christians to trusting one Christian at least. Then they move from complacency to curiosity. That is, why is my new Christian friend such a different person? Why is his life filled with joy? Why is his life filled with peace? Why, does his, you know, why is he different? They start asking questions. And then there begins to emerge in this person a willingness to change. That is, the thought dawns in them, maybe I don't have it all together. Maybe I need something that this person can offer to me. And then they move from, the book calls it, meandering to seeking. That is, they've got good intentions. They're thinking, well, maybe I ought to be a Christian. I don't know. If I am a Christian, then I have to quit living with my girlfriend or whatever it may be. So I don't know. They meander. You know, they, they have good intentions, but not firm intentions. But finally, they come to the place where they say it's Jesus or nothing, and they give their lives to Jesus. They enter the kingdom. They can sing with John Newton, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Now, to be honest with you, this seems to me to be a very commonsensical description of the stages that anyone not born into a Christian family would follow in coming to faith. You grow up without, you know, the problem is that so many of our millennials so many postmodern young people, they didn't grow up in a Christian home. They have, they've never heard the Bible read, certainly not had, had it explained in any kind of meaning explained. They've never heard somebody pray with, with feeling or pray a genuine prayer. They have no exposure to the gospel. So it makes sense that they would move through these stages in coming to faith. But I see two reasons why we would need to speak the gospel to our lost friends as early in the relationship as possible. Number one, We need to trust that God, the Holy Spirit, can save a soul as soon as he's given the truth materials. You remember what those are? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, buried, raised again on the third day, and so forth. That the Holy Spirit can save a soul, can work on that person's life, and bring them to faith the moment the Spirit is given the materials, the gospel materials to work with. 
He needs to do his work. That is the materials he needs to do his work. Who knows, a new acquaintance may be much more ready for faith than we would have thought. So don't hinder, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, don't quench the Holy Spirit by refusing to give your new friend the gospel. Give it to them as soon as possible. Not in a heavy way, not in a browbeating way, not in an intimidating way. Just give them the gospel. This is the key to my life, the core of my being. Let me tell you what makes me so glad to be alive. And you give them the gospel. And then secondly, the moment a person moves from complacency to curiosity, and that, if you'll remember, that was the second step in the stages there, you need to gently and sensitively give them the gospel again. But the thing is, where God is at work, that moment could arrive much sooner than we might be tempted to think. And that brings me to my third and last point. Disciples put the gospel front and center because it is the message that lies at the heart of effective discipleship. Now, I want you to hear me carefully. I'm not particularly talking about making disciples. Sure, if we're going to follow the Great Commission and go out and make disciples, we begin with the gospel. But I'm saying that the gospel message lies at the heart of effective discipleship, that I need the gospel in order to be an effective disciple in myself. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. Look how Paul could never forget about the gospel. Why could he never forget about the gospel? Because coming to know Jesus through the gospel was the most important thing that ever happened to him. He never forgot the impact of the gospel on his life. Now, first of all, notice that Paul makes a great effort to defend the fact of the resurrection. I don't know who said it. Somebody said facts are stubborn things. The fact of the resurrection is a stubborn thing. It has been, you you can't believe how much effort has been made to uh, discredit the story of the resurrection, and it's not possible. Paul says, look at all the eyewitnesses. Who could doubt that Jesus rose from the dead? Peter saw him alive. Then the 12 saw him alive. And even one time, he was with over 500 people at once. One of the things that psychology has proven again and again and again is there's no such thing as mass hallucination. If there were 500 people there and all 500 say we saw Jesus in his resurrection body, that's because they saw Jesus in his resurrection body. It is not possible for even two people to have the same hallucination. So this is not about what people think they saw. This is what people saw. And so Paul says over 500 at once. In other words, don't ever doubt the truth of the gospel because the resurrection is the best attested fact in history. Now, Notice, though, how Paul finishes this section. He says, last of all, Christ appeared to me. Now, I want you to notice the pattern that Paul lays out here. First, he speaks of himself. The English translation is abnormally born. Literally, the Greek word means miscarriage. Paul didn't get to walk with Jesus for three years like the others. In other words, he was kind of born at the wrong time. Whether it was born too late or born too early, it doesn't matter. He was born at the wrong time. He didn't get to walk with Jesus for three years like the other apostles. He didn't attend the big fish fry by the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection like the other apostles. He was abnormally born. And then he refers to himself as the least of the apostles because he came last, because he had the least exposure to Christ in the days of his flesh and so forth. He says, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he says, I persecuted the church. He was instrumental in people actually dying, being killed because of their Christian faith. But then Paul says, but look what a gracious God did in my life. Look at the transforming power of the gospel as applied to me. In other words, unlike Peter and James and John and the other of the 12, 
Paul didn't go to seminary. You know, a seminary career, is a master's degree, usually about three years. The apostles were with Jesus for three years. Paul didn't go to seminary. He was only exposed to the Word of God, the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit at work in his life. I'm not saying Paul didn't bring a vast wealth of biblical knowledge as a Pharisee and a rabbi and so forth, but he didn't walk with Jesus for three years. And so he says, look, my life is the greatest testimony to the transforming power of the gospel as applied to me. Look what Paul says. It almost sounds like boasting. I've worked harder. I've accomplished more for the kingdom than any of the other apostles. But then, of course, he remembers and says it right. All the credit goes to God. He was, his grace was powerful in me. His grace was at work in me. And so Paul emphasized the gospel because he had seen its power at work in his own life from a persecutor to a proclaimer and from a man who hated Jesus to a man who loved Jesus with every fiber of his being, and from a man who spoke against the gospel to the man who became the supreme preacher of the gospel. And God's grace worked, and he planted churches, and he built up the kingdom all over the Mediterranean world. What an amazing man Paul was. Outworked all the other apostles. So Paul emphasized the gospel because he had seen its power at work in his own life. Let me ask you to bow your heads, please.